You were listening to the Never Meet Your Heroes podcast, conversations with artists about their work and inspiration. I am your host, Anthony Moses Sanchez. Welcome to another episode of Never Meet Your Heroes podcast. On today's episode, we have Stephen Van Dyke. We want to introduce you to everybody, so go ahead and say hello to everybody, Stephen. Hello, everybody. And um, we'll go ahead and start with having you introduce yourself by um, telling people how you got into your field to study and your your art, as much as you want to reveal. Um, <clears throat> I grew up in New Mexico. I was a very, what's the word, solitudinous child. And I think I was just already making art. Um, mm. Even when I was eight years old, I would build cities in my living room with building blocks and paper and McDonald's toys. And I started writing poetry when I was 12. And by the time I was 16, I was uh, releasing chapbooks every three months of my really terrible poetry um, <laughs> that rhymed a lot. It really rhymed. It, okay. was, it was a lot of rhyming. Um I also played the piano. Uh, it was really, it really took over my childhood. Mm-hmm. I think my father regretted not being a musician, although he and my mother both had MFAs in art and studio art. They mm-hmm. both, they both painted, although my mother, I think I only realized that she painted like in my teens. Mm-hmm. Um, but they both came from, rural places. My mother grew up on a lumber yard. Mm-hmm. My father grew up on a farm and ranch and they were like the black sheep of their family. And then I was not a black sheep to my parents. Right. Like I very much followed in their footsteps and was thinking mm-hmm. about art at a young age. So you had, you, you were building cities. You were any particular cities or just made up ones? Made up ones. Excellent. Did um, you name them? I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> um, but I made, I was really interested in like the, the layout of cities. And um, I also mapped out my entire neighborhood when I was like nine. I had this giant, like I taped pieces of computer paper together to make like a four foot by four foot uh, thing that I put up on the wall and it had all the blocks and it was like I had made Google Maps, okay, but Google Maps didn't exist yet. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then I drew on the map all the shortcuts I could take by like walking on walls between people's yards mm-hmm. and all the hiding places I could find. So I was already interested in like excavating like an alternative viewpoint of something I don't know non-fictional. Okay. And the, so then writing you were 12, and then I didn't think you mentioned when you started doing the piano, though. When was... I was like uh, four or five. Okay. So did you learn through your parents at all? Because you're saying they had an MFA, so they did studio art, but they weren't musicians. That was one thing they didn't get into? No, I had all these piano teachers, and they okay. were all very different. They hmm. were all women. One was from New Orleans, and she died. I looked her up on Google. Hmm. This is a strange tangent to tell you about 
Darlene Harris. No, what was her name? Yeah, Darlene Harris is her right. name. Rest in peace. I was like, is that a character from Roseanne? Darlene. It is. Darlene Harris. Wait. Well, Darlene. Ro- Roseanne's maiden name is Harris. Anyway, oh. I'm like tripping right now on <laughs> my piano teacher could have been on Roseanne. Um, I had, a, I don't know. I had all these piano teachers. I miss them. Okay. I got to college, uh, just to push into the timeline. I switched to other kinds of writing. Oh, in my last year at, in my undergrad, no, no, I should say in my first year in my undergrad, I really wanted to start a band when I was like 16 and I did, Mm -hmm. but my mother was extremely discouraging. And so was my father. Mm -hmm. They were like, that's not lucrative. You're never going to make it. Blah, blah, blah. They're very (laughs) discouraging. That's Um, interesting because they, they understood art. They understood the world of art, but they did not, uh, they were still of that mentality of high culture and low culture and they could not understand how, doing something like starting a band could be both. I could see. be a mixture. Right. It was a very like 1950s, mid, mid 20th century kind of model of thinking okay. and, ol- and older. Well, yeah. And we did start a band and I was, my friend Valerie was kind of the singer. She was like in a kind of misogynistic way. We made her the singer like, Oh, it has to be a pretty woman. But like I was also the singer and I don't know. I think I actually sounded just fine. Maybe it was, who knows what happened, but we did covers of Stupid Girl by Garbage. And um, and uh, uh, if you can name Metallica songs. Enter Sandman was not that one. one. It's from the same album. Okay. Did you feel like your undergrad was fertile for you, for your art? You were going to do creatively? It was very fertile. <laughs> um <laughs> I decided to take an electronic music class. Fast forward a year or two, I had taken more music classes than anything else. Um, And I had a professor, Bruno Luschorn, Mm -hmm. who really took me under his wing. I have a lot of, I I feel like I've had a lot of professors who've taken me under their wing, and he Mm -hmm. was like the first one. Um, And he... Saw my enthusiasm, I guess, but I really resisted the technological side. But he saw my willingness. Uh, I don't know. Maybe he saw himself in me. Mm-hmm. But I started composing music, and I used Reason synthesizer software before today, where it's so popular now. That the age I was then, uh, kids today, like so many of them know how to use it. But back in 2003, it was, it seemed like kind of wild that right. I was taking this class. Then, oh, and in college, I was uh, taking harpsichord lessons. Oh. And the harpsichord teacher actually stopped giving me lessons. He said that I wasn't improving fast enough. And I was like, Seriously, I'm like, it's either write my essay to like an A level or practice the harpsichord for an hour a day this week. And oftentimes I would choose the harpsichord over the essay mm. and then he would be really impressed for that week. And I would fit, I would get like a C on the essay. So mm. it was like, I like, dude, 
I don't have the time to be as impressive for you as you would like. Yeah. Um, and I was also 20 and had terrible habits right. um, of mostly surrounding my sleep, which I, you know, maybe I'm marginally better now. Did you, do you feel like if you could go back, you would do harpsichord again? I mean, you know, if I could go back to college, uh-huh. I would take uh, anthropology classes and gender huh. studies classes. And like, I would just be a different student. Basically. Okay. And it's not like I'm not in this world now. I'm basically, I'm, I am teaching college now. True. And I have to figure out what I'm going to teach my students. And really, I, I kind of think because my mother died when I was in high school and uh, I got mono, which seems like a silly thing to, to mention, but it like took me out of school for a month and a half. Uh, basically, I was meeting men off the internet and staying up until four in the morning. And then I would be so tired that I could barely pay attention in school. Mm -hmm. So high school really didn't happen for me. I lived in such a homophobic environment that I had to go and like meet gay men and sleep with them just to like know that they existed and to affirm my own like desires and, Mm -hmm. and self. Mm -hmm. So college was like my real high school. I feel like I I was constantly playing catch up. I I had home studies, so I feel like UCLA was my high school. We're kind of, I feel like we're we are slowly catching up to what your work is writ large. <laughs> so meeting gay men on the internet, what was what was what websites were you on before? I think we've talked about this before. Uh, there was like Planet Romeo and Gay dot com, but what what primarily at that time in high school were you on? Oh, uh, in 1998, it was America Online. Oh yeah. The Albuquerque M for M room was uh, ASL. Um, Thirty-four <laughs> male <laughs> Echo Park, <laughs> but then it was uh, fourteen <laughs> male Albuquerque. No wonder they wanted to meet you. <laughs> oh, Did you meet Kevin Spacey? <laughs> I met. I met so many Kevin Spaceys. I mean the. First guy I had sex with was in his thirties, mm-hmm. and I was about to turn sixteen. The heart mm-hmm. wants what the heart wants. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel like there was a churning point when you definitely wanted to pursue something? Because it sounded like undergrad, you were still figuring yourself out. We're all still figuring ourselves out, though, right? There was a turning point where I. Um, it was in my last year. My ex and I broke up and then I just like suddenly became an A student. (laughs) Wow. I, then I met, um, my other professor that I really worked with in undergrad, Mary Beth Heffernan, um, who was at the time an adjunct, I think. And now she runs the art department. She, I took her, I just took one class with her, but I actually, would go to her office hours and spend my entire day in her office, like talking to her. And I actually just went and visited her and I hadn't gone and visited her in something like a decade. I told her, I said, I really appreciated how advicey you were. Like you would just tell me what to do sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciated that. And, you know, some people don't like advice. Um, but I really benefit from just hearing how other people would do something. And then I can decide for myself if I 
like want to do it that way or not. Right. And I don't know. Yeah. I just, I, I learned through imitation. I'm an actor at heart. No, I understand. I'm the same way. I think that's part of what we talked about before, even when we started recording, how my interest is kind of like figuring out how people got through life. And I mean, I've had growing up where I did in some, at an earlier part of Whittier when it was a little bit more, you know, make America great again back then you would have older white people telling you like how to Richard how to Nixon. how to stand in the grocery store or where you should be if you're you know standing next to something or sitting next to something so it but you I thought it was normal growing up in that so but you like advice it's it's just tough to give people advice because I like you, advice from her okay I should add that <laughs> I, I really appreciate women CEOs. She's like the boss. She just like knows her shit. I trust her. And I, I also, I think she just speaks, she just like spoke to my own values in a way where I was just awakened to what they were. Mm-hmm. And so hearing, hearing her ideas, I just, she's just like somebody that I wanted to be more like, you know? Yeah. Well, that's the importance when I bring up the idea of a mentorship. It's just somebody that kind of makes you realize that it is possible to do that. And even if you're not going to live their life every step of the way, yeah, it, it does help you get, you know, like Madonna talks about how Bowie influenced her. They get pointed in a certain direction, which is yeah part of the questions that I'm asking. I just visited her two or three or maybe more like six mm-hmm. weeks ago. And she was like, you know, sometimes I feel like I could be a lawyer like I could make mm-hmm. money and I wouldn't struggle. And she was like, do you know Melanie Klein? And I was like, yeah, yeah. The, uh, you know, in psychology. And she was like, she always talks about the good enough mother. And she's like, are you the good, are you good enough? Is, is what you've chosen good enough? And the answer is it probably is. And I was just like, Oh, that's really Good. Like, that's really useful to think of it that way for, for myself. I don't know. Like, I just needed to hear, like, I don't know. You know, like, society, people are judgmental. My parents died, and, like, they were the black sheep in their family. Right. Like, I really crave family because I don't have my, I don't have a family. I mm-hmm. just have my extended family. So I'm kind, I'm kind of a joiner, really. I joined my right. parents' uh, sort of vision of the world. Um, and so for me, like being around people who are so judgmental, I'm like, oh my God, maybe you're right. <laughs> so I like needed to hear my old professor tell me, no, 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 no. Like what you're yeah. doing is, is like good enough. Well, I'll put on my amateur therapist hat on for a second and, <laughs> and say that because you, you grew up in such a great supportive parents that insulated you from the, that judgment and losing that all creative people have a, have a choice to decide, did I miss my chance to like make a lot of money or continue down this path? And at some point you finally realize like, well, I'm happier doing this. Well, I just want to add that happiness has nothing to do with it because like being an artist is making me miserable, (laughs) Um, but that doesn't mean that it's not worth it. Wow. But I have to do it. Like I just have to. Right. Because I, because it's like how my brain was, was built. I don't know. I hope you will find happiness in it. Just maybe you're at a point where you're in that transition of. Well, I think I also take issue with the idea of happiness. 
Oh, like right. I, I think that our our society binary of work and leisure mm-hmm. like paints a picture of people needing to find what makes them happy. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, meaningfulness right. is like, I think more important. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe it leads to happiness. I don't know. This but, is like self-help book territory, but like all of all, like finding meaning can lead to a deeper sense of happiness. Yeah. And I don't know. I think it's just a word that doesn't mean much. So I'm, yeah, I'm just trying can, to, I mean, we could dig into that a little bit more just because uh, even for myself, there's been a big, uh, how I even got here as far as recording the podcast. It's a matter of figuring out what's fulfilling, what mm-hmm. makes you want to get out of bed every day. Um, but not happiness, not, not success necessarily, not, you know, being scared to fail or all those little things that everyone deals with, but we don't talk about it in society, especially now with our great dictator, you know, you know, you're a loser type of mentality. And we all forget that. Like we just, you know, we still measure success by, you know, the car you have, the houses you have or don't have your, you know, how many times you vacation and, but it doesn't mean that they're happy. Right. And I think as a creative person, as to encourage you, like, I, I don't think you would be happy elsewhere anyways. Well, yeah. I think part of, for me, another side of it is that I'm the kind of person who's really, I'm really hands-on. Mm-hmm. And so much of writing and art making is like being a, a bystander and watching the world or or being a part of this conversation that only matters to people within this one community mm-hmm. and i think for me it's like i want to talk about like how everybody's doing like I, <laughs> like I teach uh you know at the community college and i show up there and and it's like i'm like you know, I like get out of bed and I'm like, great, I have to go over there. And by the time I'm done with just an hour and a half with these students, I'm like, fuck this world. We need to burn it down. We need to like have reparations. Like we need so many things right now. It's crazy. That is what like makes me feel a little bit like the art I'm making or the writing I write, like maybe we'll reach 10,000 people, but I want to like, you know, do something that's, that, uh, I don't know. That has a little bit more action to it than just, yeah. yeah. I almost want to like run for like neighborhood council or something. I don't know. It's I like, think it's important to have all that at the same time, but right now because of the economic situation, not everybody has that opportunity. Like it's just enough to pay your rent and go to work. Like there's yeah. just not a whole lot of extra me time after that. And that's the tragedy of the, the capitalism that we're in right now maybe at the beginning it was beautiful capitalism was beautiful but right now it's just people are just working to keep their lights on well let's let's move into maybe lighter subjects are you like uh you are we are on the heels of your la road concert well where where did the idea for the road concert come from what what were some of the influences on it because i'm less familiar with that that part of understood that certain luminaries that might have been around it I think like Alan Capro and Fluxus um, are big influences on my uh, coming up with this idea. I think I had like kind of a silly idea that I wanted to like turn the road into like a musical staff. 
and like all the art along the road would be like notes and it's kind of i don't know it's silly uh and it's not really like that and that's not the most important part of it um i also i don't know i see a lot of potential for dialogue in art the ways in which we can communicate ideas through art can a gesture can mean uh, a whole you know a day's worth of talking i, I think for you with public spaces since you you're doing the la road concerts like i think that's some of those elements are there some of your what you're trying to connect you're connecting people with parts of street, parts of la that they're not normally connected to other than in their cars that's true. It's not always about being in those spaces that we drive by. In this event that's happening on Saturday, it's happening at the intersection of National Boulevard and Washington Boulevard. This is not an in-between space, although it has there's something to be said for that in this in this place, but it's more of a place with pedestrian traffic. Um, it's on the West side. I would say maybe the more exciting thing is that people who maybe can't afford to live in Culver city, um, or show their work in the galleries in Culver city are in this case, we have an event where people are coming together to show work there who would otherwise maybe never show work in Culver city. Mm -hmm. It's also the, event is themed around those names national and washington so um what does it mean to make art in a time of war um what is what is our relationship with things like the constitution you know and what does it mean to have nations like Mm -hmm. what is nationalism why do we why do people care so much about nations Um, when we are living on this planet, right? And Mm -hmm. so there's this idea of nations and nationalism, and it seemed like a thing of the past, right? It it led to to the world wars. Right. And here we are again. Well... I'll just bring up the the, the fascinating thing to me for people that might be listening to this internationally, that LA is not really built on a grid, uh, or at least at that point of national in Washington, like a lot of the streets kind of jut out to the south or to the north. I, I've heard before that it's, it, there's like this engineering reason behind it, that it's it's easier to cut across places because the city's so big. But anyways, the na- national Washington is kind of fascinating to me for that reason. Kind of like how up here in Echo Park, you know, you have uh, Hollywood Boulevard and Sunset, how they meet, you know. Well, first of all, internationally, I think most people don't live in cities on a grid. I think it's mm-hmm. a highly American situation. And the, the north, south, east, west grid is a considered, I think they call it the the English, they call it like the English system or the, mm-hmm. I forget what they call it. But the Spanish system is uh, at a 45 degree angle. So all all roads are going northwest to southeast or northwest east to southwest Mm -hmm. downtown la was supposed to be on that spanish system the idea being that uh, no no one room in your house gets heated by the sun too much oh i like Um, that yeah but the la river 
caused downtown LA to be built at a 36 degree angle instead okay. of a 45 degree angle. And here in Echo Park, the grid, the, neither grid applies because the hills right. uh, change everything. But uh, what's happening in Culver City has to do with a different whole system built around Santa Monica. Right. Um, and so you can see on the map that the English system, the north, south, east, west, takes a turn at some point. I think it's at La Cienega, um, somewhere around there. Well, that, that's that's what I'm talking about, how there's like these little parts of L.A. where there's a grid and then it juts out and then there's a grid again and then it juts out again. So anyways, that, but you have done, I guess my tangent is about you've done your your L.A. road concerts on different geographies then. Like you've done Mulholland, you've done Sunset. Yeah. Uh, so the original idea was that each road concert would be built around would would happen along the entire length of one of LA's really long streets. And the first one was San Fernando Road and I chose that one because I was a student at CalArts and San Fernando Road pretty much connected CalArts to where I lived. It was like almost like a, a straight line, although I would never drive the entire length of it with the 5 right next to it. Um and so then we did the second one was Washington Boulevard, the longest east-west street going from Whittier, where, you, where you're from, yeah. to Venice Pier. Mm-hmm. And then, so that one really interested me because it goes through so many kinds of places from the suburbs to an industrial area to downtown LA-ish to um, where, the, where the LA riots was. Um, to like the west side, mm-hmm. so we have so many so many kinds of places, um, and then there was the Sunset Boulevard event. Yeah, I took I did a poll like where what streets should happen for the next event, and Mulholland and Sunset uh, won the poll. Yeah. Of course, they're iconic, and so yeah. we did a Sunset Boulevard road concert, and then we did the Mulholland Derive, mm-hmm. and. The Mulholland event was very different. Each of them have been different in their own right. ways. The Mulholland event had literally there is no store on Mulholland. Right. Um, so it really was like if the event wasn't happening, you wouldn't see anybody. So that was the first one where where it had that feeling. And also we were in a wealthy neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, we were all people who were going into a wealthy neighborhood. Right. And so I think there was inevitably like a, we're occupying the wealthy yeah. uh, area. And there is also a, an element of like looking out at Los Angeles from Mulholland and like, you know, from our lookout point, like thinking about LA from afar and, right. and taking a literally taking a step back and thinking maybe existentially, I don't know, you know, and then what was the next event? Oh, that one was in downtown LA. That was a very, a very different event. I was working with a bunch of uh, nonprofit organizations and Alan Nakagawa was the official artist in residence of the Los Angeles department of transportation. And, um, he and I worked very closely and he was, sort of functioning like a um, concierge between me and 
uh, Vision Zero, which is like a network and nonprofit that uh, brings attention to the amount of pedestrian deaths. And downtown Los Angeles, I'll have you know, is the most uh, deadly neighborhood for pedestrians and the most deadly city for pedestrians. So it was actually the road concert last year was the official event for the day, the world day of remembrance for road traffic victims. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately it rained. So let's get into your, your book that's going to be published soon that you've been working on for a while. So congratulations on that coming out. Thanks. Yay. And the title of it, if you want to let everybody know so they can keep an eye on it. Um, what's the title of your book? People I've met from the internet. Okay. What's the publishing date for that so far? Uh, 2018. Oh, okay. <laughs> There's no set date yet. And uh, why don't you get us into that? Uh, what's the theme? What is it about? How would you describe that book? It's a list of everyone I've met in person from the internet. Mm -hmm. And it's about 600 people long. It starts in 1997 when I was... 14. Okay. Um, I became sexually active around the same time that I got access to the internet. It's basically, it's like this character who is me, but names have been changed. This character like lives a life of accumulation. And, uh, so in this, in this uh, endless accumulating of experiences and people, the, narrator main characters losses are revealed and so that yeah okay um the the project also has an ethnographic kind of function too it's taking a look at this very specific group of people who are basically most for the most part gay men who hook up using the internet post uh, AIDS era, pre grinder era. So a very specific time period and looks at like how they m know each other, meet each other, make sense of themselves, make sense of each other. And there's this astonishing way in which everybody seems to already know each other. And there's this, uh, way that the internet allows, uh, queer people to meet across social classes, across, you know, other divides racially, um, in terms of all kinds of things, age, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and that's not, this is not a new subject, um, coming up in my book, but, um, it definitely demonstrates that. And it's functions as a kind of a geography of the virtual, both in the sense of uh, my character, who is me, <laughs> goes to places he's never been before because he's going to meet some guy who might become his boyfriend. And then also it creates a new, like a new kind of geography through just this remapping that happened and is still happening because the internet connects people in a different way than through our physical landscape. Right. So 
Um, all that is happening. <laughs> so maybe this is a good time to get get a little gossipy. But how far? What's the farthest you've had to drive for a hookup? Like when I was living in San Gabriel Valley, Inland Empire, I realized when I was driving all the way out to Marina Valley, mm. I was like, "This is too far for a hookup." Well, <laughs> it's hard to say if my character is really hookup motivated. Oh, I see. You all you did mention for a boyfriend, so you're more yeah. But even that is also it's like maybe he thinks that. But I think the reality is that he really just wants to experience people. It's like, mm-hmm. um, with maybe without even knowing it, like in a very naive way, the character uh, just wants to be with everybody and right. um, just wants to feel liberated from the way in which our contemporary society confines us and um, wants just wants to be in ev- just wants to be. Maybe this extreme, an extremely naive motivator for somebody, but just wants to be, just wants to experience everybody and get to know everybody. Right. And the farthest that he drives, mm-hmm. um, he went all the way to Flagstaff, Arizona, from Albuquerque to meet my current roommate. Okay. In, back in 2005. How um, far is Albuquerque, like as far as hours wise? I'm, from I'm curious. Flagstaff or from Los Angeles? No, from because you, you were saying you drove from Albuquerque to Flagstaff for this, in this context of yeah, what you're talking about? It's like so, four and a half hour drive. I mean, I met guys that I stayed with in Paris and London. Um, <laughs> um, I, oh, I. <laughs> um I went to Keep your hands where I could see them, Stephen. <laughs> oh, let me tell you about oh, oh. Um Welcome to After Hours. <laughs> <laughs> this is the untucked. Um so uh I met a guy through MySpace who wanted to meet me and I was like, you live in North Carolina. And he was like, um, well, if you really want to come out here, I could possibly get you on the payroll. And I, and then I was like, wow, really? And he, his job was fixing church organs, um, traveling to different small towns in Appalachia to fix church organs and he was like, well, I could, we could pay for your flight in one, one direction and then you could pay the other. And so I did it and I flew to Appalachia and I worked as his assistant for a month in 2000, summer of 2008. And, um, I was paid and all I did was I never adapted like, okay, I was waking up at noon every day. When I got out there, noon is 3 p.m., and he was waking up at 6 a.m. So I was, like, literally laying on the pew of some, like, Appalachian, like, probably very homophobic church that was not in session, like, like laying there whining, like, oh, my God, I'm so tired. <laughs> and he had the thickest accent. He was like... I can't imitate it. But um, so we went on like this and they paid for my meals. It was great. It was like a luxurious vacation. And we even, before I flew out, just for like, so that you know that I'm not a total jerk, 
um, I said to him, like, maybe we're just going to be friends, and I hope that's okay. And he said, sure. And when I came out there, I guess I decided that we were just going to be friends. And anyway, we were hopping from town to town. We were in Bristol, Bristol, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And then we were in Blacksburg, Virginia, v- Virginia. <laughs> um, that yeah, and right. Well, there's two different parts of Virginia. Like there's like the more southern part, and then there's the more eastern part. Like the, yeah. at least culturally, right? Uh, right. I think the Appalachia kind of divides which which side. Has we were which only color. in Appalachia. Okay. Yeah. My hotels and restaurants were paid for, and I just like hung out with Asher for uh, weeks. And finally, one day we were in some small town in Virginia. We he was sitting on a chair and I was laying in bed, and he was just like, "Could you move your Could you move your feet? Um, um, you're kind of turning me on." And that's when I realized that in my MySpace pictures, I was just being like kind of like nonsensically creative and taking pictures where like my feet were like weirdly in the foreground. And what I realized is that they, that he had like a total foot fetish and that, um, he really liked my feet. And so I flew all the way to Appalachia for a month of my life because somebody liked my feet, um, which is totally fine. It's a nice gig if you can get it. (laughs) totally fine and we're still in touch and he um but he still has a standing offer of $25 a picture of my feet which I still have not taken up so is there any other influences uh mentors that kind of come up within your work frequently that you may have not mentioned so far that we've been talking yeah I mean um well in my in terms of my writing project um I think uh you know, I was recently revising it, and the edit my editor, who's also my close friend, and that's a long story, but uh, she was like, I think we need to hear more about your teenage obsession with uh, Shirley Manson of Garbage and Tori Amos. And I did a whole bunch of revising where I talked a lot more about, like, maybe those are the only meaningful relationships that come up for my narrator in this book. Wow. Um, the, the only, the only meaningful guides in life, uh, are coming from these characters who I don't actually, the who the narrator doesn't actually know in person. Um, all of these, uh, interactions are, they're, no, they're also very meaningful, but, um, these, uh, these women are, uh, I guess heroes, they're um, guides that uh, the narrator that I could not find in my world. What 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 about like Tori Amos has been influential then, or Shirley Manson? There was Charles Manson, and then there was Marilyn Manson, and then there was Shirley Manson. Just kidding, they have no. Tori Amos is like was huge for me when I was a, a teenager. Uh, specifically, God, that song that was very and Cornflake, Cornflake Girl actually has come back for me recently in kind of understanding how I'm returning 
to interact with people socially in LA from that I've known in the past and realizing like I never was a cornflake girl. Like I tried to fit in Mm -hmm. and I couldn't do it because that wasn't who I was. Mm -hmm. But you, I mean, the the, the lyrically, obviously because I'm a poet, lyrics are very important to me. So uh, some people don't even listen to lyrics. (laughs) But it was, it was really like important for me to come back to it and realize like what it was for me as a teenager Versus what it is for me as a almost forty year old gay man who can't get over my teenage girl issues. <laughs> is that girl issues? I don't think they're girls gender specific, but you know, definitely where I was growing up, people were like, "Why are you listening to her?" Right, guys, femphobia. Men listen to rock and roll and hip hop, and girls listen and to to that. Right, yeah. so I I feel like I'm connected to the different sides of it right i i understand why kendrick lamar's dna album is really important for me mm-hmm. at the same time i understand why rihanna's songs are really important to me mm-hmm. there isn't i don't see the gender when i'm listening to the music which i don't think anyone should anyways but my digression with you with tori amos what was important about it in your in your writing well i think uh she it's not specific to any like line in a song it's just like a general sense of like um the just like the subjective eye like from a position of uh, like a very feminine character or figure and like i'm just it's like just like a, i mean it's a very basic idea it's just like the empowered fem fem mm-hmm. basically and I think that um, from a young age, I didn't understand why. I definitely tried as hard as I could not to like Tori Amos. Interesting. And I grew up in a very homophobic environment. Um, And um, I remember my friend showed me a garbage music video as it came onto MTV and was like, you have to see this. Like, because he was like thinking Shirley Manson was totally my type. Okay. And he was right, but (laughs) I didn't want to go out with her. I wanted to be her. Right. And it was like, he could sense it. He could like tell that she was my style, but he couldn't like you've said in the past, I mean, yesterday and as a comment to my, Happy birthday wish to you. You wrote, what did you write? <laughs> oh, that you're Echo Park's only ingenue. Yeah. And I think like, you know, you, you saying that like before, I, I don't remember how I said it then, but. At your birthday, actually, we brought it up and we brought it up before. Because like you have those pictures, like I think when I first met you, you were like, wear all, all black with like your black capris and your like kind of boat neck sweater, which is so like French 70s uh-huh. ingenue style. And you would just kind of like. Yeah, like you're always posing because there was not posing in like the current selfie way, but in, and as though like you were in a film, you know, like as though there was like this ghost director following you and telling you like stand over there and just think about how life is just pitiful, but you still see the beauty in it. Like that, <laughs> maybe I'm reading too much into it. Yeah, <laughs> this is great radio. What he's doing right now, folks. <laughs> I think that you that I just feel very seen by you and <laughs> like it's it's nice that you recognize my Brid- Bridget Bardot side 
And I think Shirley Manson is really who I'm... She's not your typical uh, feminine character. She has some masculine qualities. She's um, kind of, in some ways, very dominant. And um, she's, she's not a man's idea of an attractive feminine woman. And that causes her to have a kind of hostility mm-hmm. towards both men and the women who fit that mold. I really related to that as somebody who, even though I was trying so hard to fit in and be friends with everyone, which I think is my natural disposition, mm-hmm. I still was met with hostility just for my natural behavior, mm-hmm. just for what came naturally to me. Right. And I mean, I grew up with a mother who didn't wear any makeup. Where did this desire for uh, a role model who wears so much eyeliner around her eyes that it looks clownish? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like a very gay <laughs> thing. <laughs> she's clearly a very gay... 90s kid? She's a very gay, loved uh, figure. Yeah. You know. about Tori or Shirley? Shirley. I mean, yeah. Tori, too. Tori's different. She's very beautiful, but she's also very gay. The thing I she's like drag, about... She wears drag queenish makeup. Mm. She also hits that song, Cherry Lips, which was about, inspired by J.T. Leroy, in which, oh my gosh, like the whole thing in a different sense. It sounds like we need to have like a garbage Shirley Manson episode. With Asher. Yeah. With, oh, with even more. Shirley so much, too, you have to understand. I mean, um, they have a song called Queer. They have mm-hmm. a song called Androgyny. Queerest of the queer. Yeah. I, I mean, even just the whole vow, like the, I can geek out on it my, for my own reason. Butch Vig yeah. is, um, I've, I'm an audiophile and I love, I believe before that I didn't understand it, but as far as I follow producers and Butch Vig, he did um, In Utero. Right. And I think he did Siamese Dream, uh, Smashing Pumpkins. He yeah. did a lot of great stuff. And when he, he plays the drums on in Garbage and he produced it and sonically... That was like this change when we were like moving away from analog recording and getting into digital and getting more into like that sound. We're like right now, even when we're ta- when I when I'm talking in here, like the mic's really hot, yeah. And it's like you can you can hear a presence, yeah. That's almost like coming from my chest when I'm talking, yeah. kind of thing, yeah. And I love that sound that comes out of garbage. So I'm listening to it for different reasons, and plus Shirley Manson's lyrics. I love again. all of that too. Yeah, yeah, all of the like weird noise. Mm-hmm. My very first uh, album CD that I purchased on my very own was Eurythmics' Greatest Hits, mm-hmm. and my um, mother walked in to the garage, the only room in our house that had, my father had a sound system set up because he really cared about hearing his Mozart with mm. like amazing sound. And I played Eurythmics Sweet Dreams. This was like 1995. I was very... Which sonically is similar to like the garbage sound, especially yeah. Sweet Dreams. It's just got this very like... It's very synthy. Yeah. It's very 80s. It's very mid-tempo, it's minor key, 
the character is androgynous again. Mm. Um, anyway, uh, and uh, my mother walked in and she said, did she just say abuse? And I was like, she said amuse. And my mother was like, oh, okay. And I actually didn't even notice. Maybe I didn't even know what abuse meant. Mm -hmm. And my parents both, because I just wanted to listen to it everywhere. I was 11. (laughs) And um, their reaction was, this is fake. This is not real instruments. Oh, yeah. And now nobody says that now. No. That was such a common reaction to music in, like, the, I think before my time in, like, the 70s and 80s. Right. My complaint now is that I I kind of miss hearing at least just something that, like, is, you know, at least a set of something beyond drums that can only be recorded analog. You know what I mean? Analog synthesizers. Yeah, because everything kind of just either the beats are done in, in the. Um, computer and like I try to bring this up before I think about Depeche Mode when some of the great reasons why Violator doesn't sound quite as synthy is because supposedly they they would they would make the synthesizer sounds upstairs in the computer room and then they'd run a, a, a speaker down into the like the basement or another room and then mic that so that way the the sound wasn't just so so harsh and so like it had like a a space right like we we talk about it in had an um, organic space that it reverberated in <laughs> um it was like the most beautiful experience and generally just making me miss that radio when you would hear blonde redhead against like everything like now it's just very Blonde Redhead was on the radio. Yes, at least here in L.A. on K-Rock. Blonde oh, Redhead was on the radio Or here. you mean that one station, 103.1, that played like, like it was, I want to call it like hipster music. No, there was 106.7. Like, wait, yeah. Wait, no. Did they play it on there? They played, That's cool. Yeah, I no, there was just before all the corporations bought all the radio stations out here in L.A. area, there was still a very independent sound. Like, you know, even Rodney on the Rock was still... A very normal way to get. I feel like Henry Rollins now carries that baton of like you know mm. just playing music that just you know you fall into something and you just put it on the radio just in case somebody else wants to get into it. I feel like KCRW single handedly carries that torch on LA radio. They try. I mean, yeah. it's still like they're. It's still like KCRW. <laughs> it's still like you're listening to like. Or, oh yeah, that's true. Or, Anyways, we digress, which is wonderful. But I do want to wrap up what we're talking about. So I guess we've covered a lot. We have more to cover. Um, but we can cover that next time. I, I just want to say one last thing. Because no. I don't like what <laughs> I just don't like what I said. I don't like what I said. I just want to add that the all all of the interactions that my character has with all of the people are meaningful. Mm-hmm. But he he uh finds I guess a kind of mentorship role from mm-hmm. these characters, from these characters, from these people, these women who, okay. whose music he listens to. The interactions with people that he meets that I met through the internet are extremely meaningful to him, but they're mm-hmm. a different kind of meaningful. And they're not 
like some people are like, oh, you're a hookups book. And it's like, well, they're not hookups. And they're like, sometimes they are sexual. Uh, sometimes they are with the intention of romance. But all of the time there there is an element of like, I am actually connecting with somebody else when like the world as I experience it, not through interactions initiated on the internet, do, do not seem like they seem like they're all like approaching, re, like actually engaging with each other, you know, like the, I don't know, this is Albuquerque for you, but like the cashier who's like all too willing to like open up, which maybe LA we don't experience. No. But um in in other parts of the country people are like almost desperate for I think are almost desperate oh, yeah. for a kind of engagement. When I was in da- all of Texas, but in Dallas specifically and it's kind of why I'm doing uh, there's many many reasons why I'm doing this podcast. So don't feel as though I'm I, I'm just as scattered as everyone else. It's just yeah. that the, they come up when we talk about other things, but yeah, when I was in in Dallas and in um, Austin, and you know, people were very happy to give a compliment and not want anything back from it, just to say like, "I like what you're doing," which is great. But we forget that here in LA. Is that kind of what you're touching on with Albuquerque? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think it's yeah. I mean, I think in a place like Albuquerque, I in LA, people either I don't know. It's it's a very weird. LA is a very weird place. Like in one book they write about how there are like nine social, nine distinct social classes in Los Angeles and Albuquerque. It's like very middle class, right? Lower middle class. Well, I think part of why we relate is because I grew up in, in Asher as well, a kind of middle class suburb. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's very overwhelming to me to like be around, people who have so much access and then right next to people who have none. And I'm just like, why don't you want, like there are all these like ingrained, I don't know. It's Mm -hmm. like, and I could talk for a whole hour just about Mm -hmm. like what, like my, my students and my interactions with my students and, um, my, one of my students earlier this week being like, the system has set us up to fail. And then she was like pointing out like, like we can't like there isn't like the assignment is like to like what is the solution yeah and uh that that my students were starting to all agree there is none and i was like there is and they're like well you're a lot closer to being able to 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 make that happen maybe mm-hmm. i don't agree and then i was like oh shit no i do agree like white privilege blah 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 mm-hmm. and then i do think that you can have an impact and then i was like no my instinct was right like I do like despite white privilege, I do think that they can have an impact. I think they can. I yeah. think that but I think it's that's a whole other this can take three hours. <laughs> yeah, so we gotta, but we'll I have think, to come back to it. Well but. I think every conversation should include it. No, I know. I yeah, I yeah trust but, me. I'm not trying to tweak <laughs> it under the rug. I'm just saying that um it's so deep and uh, that's kind of why I can't, I don't feel like I could shorten these conversations because you only get a meaning, meaningful conversation if you've been talking for a few hours. Right. Right right now everything's about like five, seven minute, one minute, 15 seconds. And you know, we're not going to be, we're not going to change the world 
or even somebody's mind if we're not able to just stare at each other for an hour and talk about something. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's a good place for us to wrap up. Um, Steven, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you. And thank you for having me. Let's tell everybody how to find you on hookup apps. No. <laughs> um, I am on Tinder, but it says I'm in a monogamous relationship. He is. So I'm still willing to meet people through the internet. You can look, but you can't touch. But you can um, take pictures. And I, I do think I like you much, whoever you are <laughs> out there. So we have the road concert coming up. Hopefully I'll have this podcast up by Friday. And um, it's then on, you got the book coming up. The um, road concert is extremely soon. Yes. And the book is so far in the future. Um, and they can find you. Uh, you have the LA road concerts dot what? Com. And um, <laughs> and otherwise, they could find you on Facebook, or they could just they could find Twitter. me on Instagram and Twitter and um, Facebook too. Okay, and um, email. You can email me. You can All call right. me. Whatever. <laughs> Phone numbers are just as uh, private as any of these. It's kind of true. People don't really call each other anymore but you might get text some weird things but whatever. if you google my them. name and you could probably find my phone number so mm-hmm. <laughs> all right well we we've talked for at least an hour now so we're okay. gonna wrap things up for everybody okay. um and thank you for being on the podcast again and we'll i'm sure we'll, we have plenty more to talk about again in the future thank, thank you, you steven thank you for having me Thanks for listening to Never Meet Your Heroes podcast. Find us at nevermeetyourheroespodcast.com where you can post comments, ask questions, and interact with artists and listeners. Also, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. And if you're on YouTube, don't forget to comment, like, and subscribe. 